again, we'd like to say that we're very thankful for this, uh, this precious opportunity and this precious privilege to be here in the house of the Lord. We actually have some folks that are outside this morning worshiping with us through our, our AM radio transmitter, and uh, we want to welcome them here this morning also, even though they're not in the building with us. They are here with us worshiping the Lord this morning. And we trust that the Lord's grace and mercy would be with them and the blessings of the gospel would comfort their hearts and encourage them as they faced uh, the troubles, the trials, the tribulations, the problems of, of this world. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I trust that you do. I'd like to encourage the congregation to bring your Bible to the house of the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to begin reading in verse 32, and we're going to read through 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 4. As we consider this morning the limitations of David, the power of God, and the day that will be the day that ends all bad news. 2 Samuel Chapter 18, verse 32. And the king, that's David, said unto Cushai, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord the king, and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved, and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Second Samuel chapter 19 and verse 1, And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. For the people heard say, That day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people get them by stealth that day into the city. As people being ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face. And the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. In order to understand the context of these verses, we're going to have to go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, the son of Jesse, has been, has been blessed with abundance. He's been blessed to be the king over Israel. God's blessed him to sit on the throne. God's blessed him to have victory in battle. God has blessed him to have influence over the people. There was a day when David should have been out in battle with his men, but he stayed at home, taking a nap during the day, all about himself. He rose up and looked, and he saw a woman bathing herself. Her name was Bathsheba. Now, I will confess to you, Bathsheba should have had herself covered. But David should not have been there to look on. See, brothers and sisters, we can save ourselves a lot by just not being in the place. We can stay away from certain places, and it will deliver you from certain temptations of sin. When David saw her, he called to have her brought to him. She was brought to him, and he, he lied with her. He committed adultery. When he committed adultery, he thought, well, it's just one time. It's all hid. She ended up being with child. David, in his effort to hide his sin, called her husband home from battle. His name is Uriah, faithful man to Israel. Desired that Uriah would go home, be with his wife, you know, get the sin all hid, swept under the rug. Nobody knows about it. Uriah was too faithful to his position. Mm -mm. I can't go home to my wife and just eat all the fruits when all the men in Israel are sleeping in fields. I'm not going to do it. 
David, in another effort to hide his sin, sent a letter by Uriah to have Joab put him in, in front of the hottest battle, that he'd be killed. And it happened. By David's hand, this man that was blessed of God abundantly, there was a letter written that would have Uriah killed in battle to hide his own sin. And he thought he got away with it. He called Bathsheba to himself. She became his wife. David's happy. Nobody knows about my sin. Everything's good. It didn't please God. God was displeased with this man that he had blessed. And God sent a prophet. His name was Nathan to David. And Nathan reproved David. He stuck his finger in his face and told him about his sin. And told him how God would judge him for his sin. You know, David basically pronounced his own judgment that day. And David, because of his sin, he lost influence in his household. I mean, can you see his sons and how much influence he'd lose in his house after he committed such sin? He lost influence in his house. Nathan told him that the sword would never leave his house. And from that point forward, David's house was, was just a wreck. It was a wreck. Because of God? No, because of David. David. God forgave David of his sin, but there was a consequence to his action that remained. Brothers and sisters, it's good for us to remember that God is forgiving God. God loves his children. God is merciful and faithful. But there are consequences to our decisions we make in this life that we'll have to face. And because of that sin and David's loss of influence over his family, from that point forward, his household was a wreck. 2 Samuel chapter 13, it was Amnon, David's son, that fell lovesick for his half-sister Tamar. And because he wanted her so, he forced himself upon her, committed adultery in Israel of such a sin that should not be heard of even in the Gentile world, an ungodly world. He did it, and it brought shame on the kingdom. David had another son, Adonijah, who was so self-desirous of, of self-gain and self-prosperity that he would not accept that Solomon would be king later on in life. But this son, Absalom, he takes up a lot of space from 2 Samuel 13 until we read about his death here in 2 Samuel chapter 18. And this one named Absalom, could I say he was the icing on the cake of David's sons. This man, Absalom, in my humble estimation in the Bible, probably displays the carnal nature, the sinful nature of man as well as anybody that, that lived. I'm not here to judge if Absalom was a child of God or not, but I'm going to tell you he was a man that lived his life according to the flesh. He lived for himself. And when you read about Absalom and all that he did and how his life ended, his life ended there in battle with his hair getting caught in a tree and him dying in a tree. And yet David, his father, loved his son so much, he said, Absalom, Absalom, my son Absalom, how God would, I died for thee. What is David saying? Absalom, I wish it was me hanging in that tree, dead instead of you. When I think about this statement that's here in the end of 2 Samuel chapter 18, and I think about and ponder about Absalom's life, Absalom didn't deserve such love. I go as far as saying Absalom wasn't looking for such love from his father. Absalom had no respect for his father. You know, David, when he fled from his house because of Absalom's effort to be king, David was barefoot and had his head covered. And there was a man named Shimei that was the son of Saul of Kish, a relative of his, that cursed David and would cast dirt at him as he went. Absalom didn't feel bad about that. Absalom was a man that was all about, all about him. Do you remember there in 2 Samuel chapter 13 when I said Amnon forced himself on his half-sister Tamar? You know who Tamar's full brother was? Absalom. And when that happened, Absalom never forgot about it. If you go to 2 Samuel chapter 13, you will find when he got that information about Tamar and Amnon, her half-brother, forcing himself upon her, Absalom just told her, just keep quiet, hold it within yourself, basically saying, I'll take care of it. Absalom was not concerned about the judgment of the king. Absalom was not concerned about the judgment of God. Absalom was concerned about his own grudge 
and retaliation that he would have concerning that sin against his sister. If you'll notice with me, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 21, But when King David heard of all these things, how Amnon forced himself on his sister, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad. He would just walk by. How you doing? For Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamara. And it came to pass after two full years. Two years this man Absalom held this grudge against his half-brother until he had an opportunity to act on that grudge. And he had a sheep shearer's party, meaning he had all his friends come. It's a time of prosperity for me and my farm. And he told him to have Amnon, and he had Amnon murdered, killed him. Did he have any guilt of that? No, he didn't have any guilt. He deserved it. I held my grudge for two full years. That was not a man who had forgiveness on his mind. That was not a man that had his brother's prosperity on his mind. That was not a man that appreciated the Lord and the Lord's position of judge or the king's position of judge. That was a man that thought about nothing but himself and fulfilling my desire to retaliate for something that was done to my sister. Because of that, he fled. He fled the kingdom. He left. It was because of Joab's efforts. Joab was David's nephew. David's sister, Zeraway, had three sons. Ahithophel, Joab, and Abishai. Those were David's nephews. And Joab, he, he cared about Absalom. Second Samuel chapter 14, Joab approaches David, tells him a story about, talks to a woman of Tekoa who comes and tells David a story and, and she pricks David's heart and David said Absalom can come back home. When Absalom comes back home though, David said he's limited, he cannot see my face. Absalom was not a man that was going to be limited. Mm -mm. Other men are not going to tell me what to do. Absalom was a man that thought a lot of himself. You know, his hair was so beautiful, and the Bible said there was no man in Israel like him. Notice with me in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25. But in all Israel, there was none to be so much praised as Absalom for his beauty. And he was a man that thought so much of his own looks and so much of himself, he would cut his hair and he would weigh, weigh his hair. Wow. Now, that's thinking a lot of yourself, don't you think? <laughs> now, I go get haircuts, but I never have got to a point that I love my hair so much I thought I'd weigh it after the haircut just to see how my, much my hair weighed. But that from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, there wasn't a blemish on Absalom. David said, you're going to be limited in seeing my face. Mm -mm. No, he's not going to have that. No man's going to limit me. A little later in chapter 2 Samuel chapter 14, it was Joab. Absalom wanted to speak to Joab. Joab wouldn't listen to Absalom. Wouldn't respond to his request. What did Absalom do? Well, I'll just wait till the brother has time to talk to me. Uh-uh. That's not what Absalom did. Absalom set his field on fire. Burn his field. When I call for him, he's going to come. Wow, was he demanding or what? Was he a man that had humility that I'll just wait until I get my opportunity? I want to tell you, Absalom was not a man that was going to stay in line at McDonald's waiting until you got there to the drive-up window. Uh-uh. Now, he was a man that's going to be honking his horn saying, you're getting out of my way. This is my time to put in my order. Bernie's field. Joab was upset. He burnt my field. And Notice what Absalom, how he answers Joab in verse 32 of 2 Samuel 14. And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face. Remember David said, You can't see my face? Absalom said, No, I'm not going to be limited. No. No man's going to put parameters on me. He said, And if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Wow, he's not a man that has a conscience of guilt, does he? He had his own brother killed. If there's any guilt in me, let him kill me. What is he saying? I've done something, but I had every right to do it. He justified his own sin. 2 Samuel chapter 15. 
this man named Absalom that thought so much of himself. David, his father's the king, and his father's been good to him. David was good to Absalom. David was not evil to Absalom. He was good to Absalom. Absalom had many days he enjoyed food on, the, on David's table. Absalom had many days he had a roof over his head during times of storm because his father David was the king. Second Samuel chapter 15, Absalom, he begins to stand at the gate of the city. When people come in the city, oh, he would kiss their hands. When people would have a problem in the city, Absalom would say, oh, I'll tell you, if I, was, if I was the king over you, things would be better. Absalom was a politician deluxe. He was a man that did not appreciate that his father had been blessed of God to be king over Israel, but he was a man that desired that for himself. He was ambitious, was he not? He thought so much of himself that in his lifetime he made a pillar for himself that everyone would remember him. Notice in 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared up for himself a pillar which is in the king's dale. All about, all about me, all about me. And because it was all about him, David, the king of Israel, had to run for his life. One of the saddest scriptures in the Bible is when David is fleeing for his life, barefoot with his head covered, and people cursed him along the way, and Absalom, feeling no guilt, but just happy as he could be, I finally got what I deserve. I am the best in the land. That's Absalom's opinion of himself. God blessed David to gather the troops together. God blessed David that there would be council overthrown. And David comes back with his men and he takes the city back in battle. Takes Jerusalem back. In that battle, David made one request. Deal kindly with my son. Don't hurt him. Notice with me in 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 5, And the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Adiah, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man. Wow, that's amazing love. Would you agree? A man who didn't appreciate the king's love? A man who was not thankful for all that he had received from David, his father? A man that did not have respect for his father? A man that only cared about himself, his own self-interest? All about me? And David said, when we go back, just, just don't hurt him. I love my son. What happened to Absalom? In the battle, Absalom got his hair hung in an oak. Notice with me, verse 9. And Absalom met the servants of David. And Absalom rode upon a mule. And the mule went under the thick boughs of a great oak. And his head caught hold of the oak. And he was taken up between heaven and earth. And the mule that was under him went away. And there was one that saw him there. And that one that saw him there, they came and told Joab. Now, Joab, David's nephew, I'm going to tell you, Joab was not a man you wanted angry at you. Joab was an instrument of death. Joab, when it came to, to taking an individual's life, he, he didn't have a conscience. And even though David had said, deal kindly with the lad, verse 14, 2 Samuel 18, then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. Absalom's life ended hanging in that tree. David, his son, he gets this information. David says, oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom. I can just see the tears flowing down his face. If God would, I'd died for you. I'd have taken your place. If it was my will, David said, it'd be me that was dead in that tree and you that was alive and enjoying the kingdom. Did Absalom deserve that? Was Absalom even looking for that? David, even though he had that desire to take Absalom's place, he couldn't do it. David was limited. Now, David loved Absalom. He loved him with an amazing love. Would you agree? He cared about his son in an amazing way. To the degree he said, Absalom, I would have taken your place. I would be dead in that tree instead of you. But David did not have the power 
to act on his desire. When I consider that and I consider the Lord in us, just as Absalom was undeserving of that love, so are we undeserving of God's love. Before the world began, God loved us. God loved his people. Before the water even hit a timely shore, God loved his people. Before the sun ever shined, before God ever made the sun and caused it to shine, before the moon ever made a circuit around the earth, God loved his people. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 teaches us he loved us and because he loved us, he gave us to his son. In Adam we sinned and we've sinned all of our lives and come short of the glory of God and not one of us can lift up our voice and boast that we've lived a good life. When I look back in my life, I see failure after failure after failure and I'm completely convinced that Romans 3.23 is speaking about me as well as you for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, man has a tendency to measure himself by other men. Have you ever noticed that? And when we measure ourselves by other men, we may think, well, I've done better than him. Or I've done better than her. Or we've done better than them. But the standard is not one another. The standard of doing things right is not me. I'm not the standard. The standard of right is, is God. That's the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard. Now, if I lined all of us up in a line on a perfect straight line and said, let's take one jump toward Monroe, the city of Monroe, you may jump further than me. I may jump further than you. There may be somebody here that jumps further than everyone in the room. But there's one thing for sure. We all come way short of reaching Monroe in that one hop. When we consider our works, let's not measure ourselves by one another. The Apostle Paul said, they that measure themselves among themselves are not wise. But let us measure ourselves by the standard, which is God, which is truth, which is righteousness, which is perfection. And when we do so, we see that we come far short. And when we see ourselves coming far short of what God has created man to be, of what God has called on us to be, we understand how undeserving we are of God's love and mercy. Truth be known, the Bible teaches us without God's love in us, we're not even seeking God's love and approval. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 10 and verse 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not and all of his thoughts. But praise God, David here in this context was limited in what he could do in taking Absalom's place, our Lord Jesus Christ, the true David and king of Israel, the beloved one was not limited, but had the power to act on his will and desire to take our Place. David desired to hang in the tree in Absalom's place, but could not. Why? He did not have the ability. The Lord Jesus Christ had the will to do so, the love to do so, and was not limited, but did come in this world. And he took our place, suffering our hell that we deserve on the cross of Calvary. That's how much greater Jesus is than David, the king of Israel. Jesus took our place. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ has also once suffered for sins, the just, that's him, for the unjust, that's us, that he might bring us to God. How did he bring us to God? By taking our place on the cross of Calvary, being put to death in the flesh, but he was quickened by the Spirit. Not only did the Lord love us and have the desire to take our place, suffer our hell for us, to satisfy the judgment seat of the Father that we had offended, He did. He did take our place. You know what happened on the cross? Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took our place. 
Jesus suffered the judgment that was rightfully, rightfully ours. We were not seeking a place with God. It was Jesus that sought us. Jesus that loved us. Jesus had the power to take our place. And when he took our place, he satisfied the only one that mattered. And that was the Father in heaven. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 says this, Herein is love. You want to know something about love? John said herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Does that sound like Absalom? Not that Absalom loved David, but David loved Absalom and wanted to take his place, but could not. Hold on a minute. This is about Jesus, not David. Herein is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which means a full atonement covering for our sins. What that's saying is Jesus took your place. When I think about the cross of Calvary and what Jesus suffered, I think about my sin because on that day, the one who had no sin in him, the one who committed no sin, the one that did no wrong, the one that lived a perfect life from the cradle to the cross, suffered on that cross, and it was my sin that was on him, and he satisfied the Father in my room instead and did something that I could not do for myself, and that's pay the debt of my crimes. crimes. And that's what Jesus did. He did something that David could not do for his sons. Jesus did this for us. My father, Elder Marvin Loudermilk, one of his favorite texts in the Bible was Romans 5, 6. I asked Daddy once, I said, what's well, your favorite text in the Bible? He said, it gives me hope. Why does it give you hope, Dad? For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I said, that gives you hope? He said, it does. He said, because I know I'm ungodly. And it says Jesus died for the ungodly. And if you feel to be ungodly, brothers and sisters, that text is for you. And that text teaches you that you, feeling ungodly, Jesus took your place, doing something that David could not do for his son. But David in his love, David in caring about his son, he's still hurting. Cushai, this one whose name literally means blackness and darkness, he comes with a message. Your son's dead. You know, there was one that wanted to bring a message, but he didn't have a message to bring. But it was Cushai that had the message of death. And he brought this message to David. And David, knowing that the peace of the kingdom, the joy of the kingdom, could not exist with a man like Absalom in it, yet loved his son so much when that news got there, it just broke, broke his heart. It broke his heart so much it affected him and his, his person. It broke his heart so much his, his sadness affected people around him. It broke his heart so much it affected him and his office as, as the king. And Joab approached him and said, you know, this is not good. It's not good for you to take this bad news. I know this is breaking your heart, but it's not good for you to take this bad news and to be sad and to be down because it's affecting you, it's affecting the people. And it's affecting your office as king. And David washed himself. He rose and began to act as the king in the kingdom. And there'd be joy. Even though it was bad news. How did David go forward from handling that bad news? That was bad news for David. Now there's a lot of people in the kingdom who are happy. Absalom's gone. But it's still David's son. He's my son, and it's really because of my influence or lack of the influence that he's dead. It's bad news. You know, David had received bad news before in his life. Do you remember there in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when he got the news about his little child dying? His little child died before he was eight days old. And after David got the news of the child's death, he washed himself, changed his raiment, and people were like, well, why were you so sad before the child died? And you're so happy now that the child has passed and, and you washed yourself. He said, before the child died, who could tell if God would answer and be merciful? He said, but now that he's gone, he should not return to me, but I shall go to him. David was able to handle the bad news with his mind focused on a, on a better day. Could I say here in 2 Samuel chapter 19, this bad news 
that comes to David about his son's death, David believed that the Lord could strengthen him in that sadness. But he also had his mind focused on a day when there'd be no more bad news. You know, through time in the Bible, we find events where people got bad news and they, they were sad, but they were able to lift themselves up and go forward and go forward. Why? Understanding that the Lord's strength was sufficient and also there'd be a better day than this day that they'd receive bad news. Do you recall in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 25, when Jeremiah gets the news that Josiah's dead? Josiah's dead. He's gone. And Jeremiah wept. Now, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. There's many reasons Jeremiah wept, but he wept here because of the death of Josiah. Why did he weep so much? Jeremiah knew, knew in his heart and his mind there would never be another king in Judah like Josiah. He saw the political, governmental direction of the nation of Judah, and he knew this man named Josiah that caused great revival in the city, this man was a godly man, this man was a man that desired to repair the breaches of the house of God. What does that mean? A breach is when something's open that allows something in that should be on the outside and lets things out that should be on the inside. It's breaches. The nation had got so ungodly that the Sodomites had built their houses there connected to the house of God. It had got so ungodly that ungodly things were in the house of God. Those things that should be kept in the house of God were being taken out. And Josiah repaired the breaches, caused great revival for the people of God. Now that he's gone, Jeremiah weeps. He weeps. He knows. There's not going to be another one like this. It's downhill from here. How do we go on, Jeremiah? Jeremiah understood that God's strength was sufficient and there'd be a better day than that day in the future. I recall a man named the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10. He gets some bad news. It's Demas. He's forsaken me and he's winning to Thessalonica. Don't you know the Apostle Paul and his devotion to the Lord and devotion to God's service when he knew that Demas had forsaken the service of God and went to Thessalonica, which is no more than just a party town, enjoying the parties and the pleasures of this world, don't you know it got him sad? You know, the Bible calls on us to be devoted to God. But I will assure you, the more you're devoted to God, the more it will hurt you when someone you know should be devoted is not as devoted as they should be. The Apostle Paul was grieved in his heart, that bad news. How are we going to go on? He believed the Lord's strength is sufficient. Paul would say in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. He's not talking about playing football. He's not talking about playing baseball. He's not talking about going bowling. He's not talking about going hunting. He's talking about his service to the Lord. I can do all things in the service to God through him that strengthens me. And Paul also believed there'd be a better day. Brothers and sisters, as long as we live here in this world, we're going to have days like David had here in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Days when you'd say, I tell you what, I wish it was me suffering instead of that person suffering. Days when you have things that disappoint you. Don't you know it's disappointing to David when Joab comes back with the news, yeah, he's dead and I was the one that killed him. <laughs> it was disappointing, but how do we go on from here? David lifted himself up. We go on from here. He went off from there for his own person's sake to have some joy in his life. Why? Because just the bad news and the bad news of life can get you down to the point. It will destroy your life. He went on for others' sake. You know, me, Ronnie, Benjamin, Loudermilk, I got a family. I mean, if I get bad news after bad news after bad news and I just give up, what kind of thing will I have on my kids? But he also did it for the sake of his service. He was the king of, of Israel. We've got to go on. How do we go on? How do we go on? I remember a man named Joshua in Joshua chapter 1. Moses is dead. This man that God has used. This man that Lord God has blessed. The Lord has blessed him. He's led the children of Israel through the wilderness. God took him up into the mountains and took his life. He's gone. What do we do? Moses, my servant, is dead. Now let's take these children into the land of Canaan. And Joshua, he lifted up himself and led the children of Israel. Why? Because God's servants, they pass. But God's service goes on in this world. And the only way we can go forward after we get the bad news and the troubled news of this world is remembering that Jesus can strengthen me. And there's going to be a better day than this in our, in our future. 
See, David was limited. The Lord's not limited. And praise God, there is a day coming, brothers and sisters, when we'll have no more bad news. I'm looking forward to that day. How about you? I'm looking forward to not having any more bad news from Washington, D.C. I'm looking forward to not having any more bad news about death in the family. I'm looking forward to the time we'll have no more bad news about catastrophes and accidents. I'm looking forward to we'll have no more bad news about the troubles of this world. When will that come? It will come on the last day. The last day. You know, days, plural, there's many days. But there's only one last day. When is the last day? When the Lord appears in the clouds. That's the last day. At the time of resurrection, that's the last day. There's not going to be any more days after the last day. It'll just be an eternal day with the Lord. You ever heard one say, I'll tell you what, when the Lord comes back, he's going to appear in the clouds and people that's done right, you know, they're going to be taken to heaven and and then Jesus is going to come back to earth and give us, give us all that hadn't got everything right, another chance to get things right. And there'll be so many days here on earth. And they'll say it's a thousand year reign here on earth. You ever heard that? You know, where they're taking Revelation 20 that's given to us in figurative language and trying to make it physical, literal. <laughs> My daddy told me, he said, I remember when that was first being preached in Northeast Georgia. He said, nobody there had heard that. And he said, there was a, there was a sister on the pew said she'd been coming to church all her life. And said, and as a man that put up one night at a service, he preached on the thousand year reign. Jesus, he's going to come back here. When he appears in the clouds, it's not the last day, but it's the last day for some people. And then we'll have time here on earth, you know, get things right. Happiness and utopia. They went to that sister and they said, you know, we know you've been to church here your whole life. What do you think about the thousand year reign? She said, well, I remember in the days of Noah, it rained 40 days and 40 nights and flooded the earth. She said, I suspect the thousand-year rain might near be a gully washer. <laughs> she had that about right. When the Lord appears in the clouds, the Bible says it's, it's the last day. Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will no wise cast out. For I came now from heaven... Not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but raise him up again at the last, what's the word? Day, day. John 6, 44. No man cometh to me, but the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up again at the last day. What about John chapter 11? When Jesus comes to Lazarus' graveside, and Martha comes out there, Jesus tells Martha, thy brother shall live again. She said, I know he'll live again in the resurrection at the last, what does it say? Day, singular day. When the Lord appears in the clouds to take us home to glory, that will be the day that ends all days of bad news. Are you looking forward to that day? On that day, we, the children of God, will never receive any bad news from any doctors, any news, anywhere, all is going to be good and happy forevermore. The Apostle Paul spoke about that time in Romans chapter 8, if you'd like to turn there with me. Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time with our past. Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul spent some time with our present. Romans chapter 8, he encourages us concerning our future. He tells us in our future we have no condemnation, we have no cemetery, we have no sufferings in our future, ultimate future. Our ultimate future will be a time when we're with the Lord forever, not being separated from the presence of His love. But also in our ultimate future we'll have a time of no desperation, no wanting of anything else. Because why? All the days of bad news and sadness are over. Notice when the Romans chapter 8 and verse 19, the Apostle Paul said, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What does that say? The earnest expectation is the same as hope. Hope is an earnest expectation. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20, According to my earnest expectation and my hope. The word and there in the Greek is the term chi, which literally means even. 
The Apostle Paul, what he's done here in Philippians 1.20, he said the same thing two different ways for you to understand what he's saying. According to my earnest expectation, even my hope. For the earnest expectation of the hope of the creature. Who's the creature here? Oh, Brother Ronnie, uh, that's probably talking about bats and mice and owls and dogs and chickens. No, it's not talking about that. It's talking about the new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. So what that's saying is the born again children of God. For the earnest expectation of the creature, or in my words, the hope of the born again child of God, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What does he say? For the hope of the born again child of God is waiting on that day when I'll be satisfied with me. Me. That's what he's saying. Waiting on that day when I will be satisfied with, with me. You know the reason there won't be any bad news after that day? You're going to be completely satisfied with, with yourself. There'll be nothing wrong with you and nothing that could ever tarnish you or nothing that will ever be able to change the perfection that you're in. You know why? After that day, you will be like Jesus Christ soul, body, and spirit. David said in Psalms chapter 17, verse 15, As for me, I will see thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Have you ever noticed where the commas are in that sentence? I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I shall be satisfied, comma, when I awake with thy likeness. Take out the phrase in the commas. I shall be satisfied with thy likeness. That's what he's saying. There's coming a day when we will be like Jesus in perfection. No sin, nothing wrong with us, and we will be satisfied. What that's saying is you'll never have a doctor come to you and say, hey, you, we found cancer. Oh, we, we found something else wrong with you. We found that you've got leukemia. No, you'll be satisfied with you forever and ever. Nothing can hurt you in glory above after that day. No more bad news. No more days when they come and say, guess what happened? You're going to die tomorrow. You're sick. you got limited time. No. We'll be satisfied with ourselves. You know what else? I'll be satisfied with you. And you'll be satisfied with me. You know why we won't be able to find anything wrong with each other? Not that we should be looking, right? But you don't have to look far to find something wrong with me. But we're satisfied with one, and one another. Are you looking forward to the day when you'll be satisfied with, with yourself? Just be happy in the image of Jesus Christ. I will. You know, my daddy illustrated life like this. He said, life is like having a jail cell. He said, and two men are in this jail cell. And they can't get along with one another. They have different interests. They have different desires. They have different wants. They can't get along. And neither one can get out. Because neither one has the key. When I think about me, a born-again child of God, that's my hope. I believe I've got the nature of Christ in me, but I still got old Ronnie. And see, I'm in this jailhouse. You know, old Ronnie wants to dominate the jailhouse. The born-again child of God wants to dominate the jailhouse. And it's not that there's two of me, there's only one of me, but I have two natures and we're in the same jailhouse. We can't get along and neither one of us can get out and neither one of us can be happy because we're in this jailhouse. But neither one of us have a key. Praise God. The Lord's got the key. Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who's delivered me? Who's got the key to take me out of the body of this death? I thank God through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus, praise God, on that last day, he takes the key and he lets us out of that jailhouse and the old man will be no more and we'll be satisfied and happy with ourselves forever and ever and ever. Another reason there'll be no more bad news. Notice with me verse 20 and 21. For the creature was made subject into vanity, not willingly. Same creature, born again child of God. But by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creature itself, same creature, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What is he saying? 
this bondage of corruption, this is the environment that we're in. Are you satisfied with the environment that you're in? I'm not. The environment that I'm in just brings bad news every day. Every day that passes, it's an opportunity for more bad news. We're living in just a corrupt, broken world. You know the reason we have troubles in this world? One reason we live in a broke world, and if you live here, you're going to have troubles. But the Apostle Paul says this in this chapter, one day it'll be a day of no more bad news. Why? Because the creature itself shall be delivered from this environment that we're in into a glorious environment of heaven above. No more bad news. Don't get the news that your roof wore out on your house. Don't get the news that your tires are gone on your car. Don't get the news that things are broken down. You'll be happy forever and ever and ever. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together to now. What's that creation? The same creature. The born again children of God. He said the born again children of God. And I would tell you no matter how much the born again child of God likes to hide it with this coat of flesh. There's groaning within them desiring something better than what they have in this world. Still not talking about the mice, the bats, and the owls, and the cows, and the goats. He's not, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the born-again children of God. I had a man one time, I read a little article he wrote. He said this text here in verse 22, whole creation is talking about brute creation, things out in the world, the cows, and the goats, and the bulls. And I thought, you know what, I'm going I'm to call a good friend of mine to know something about cows and bulls. I'm going to call Elder James Isaacs. You ever heard of him? I called Brother James. Hello. <laughs> Brother James, look at this text right here. How do you take this text? Do you take this text as brute creation, bulls, cows, goats, or do you take this as the whole creation, every born-again child of God is groaning in pain because of the environment of this world? He said, now, Brother Ronnie, <clears throat> I'm looking out the window of my house, and I've been in this house, so I know what window he's looking out. I'm looking out here at 60-something head of cattle, and he said, Nain, I nurn one of them worried about tomorrow. <laughs> All they're worried about is the food they get today. He said, so they're not groaning and travailing. He said, what's groaning and travailing is the born-again children of God. You know the reason this environment of this world hurts you? All the bad news. The reason you know it's because you're a child of God. That's why it hurts. It hurts. But the good news of the gospel is that there's a day coming when there'll be no more bad news, but you'll be satisfied with yourself and also satisfied with your environment. You know, the gates of the city of heaven are left open all the time, but they ain't nobody leaving. You know why nobody's leaving? They're happy there. Paul goes on, verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, not only the whole creation, but me too, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption of wit, that's the redemption of our body. What is he saying? There's a time coming when my entire desire, hope, and faith will be satisfied and I will want no more. Sometimes bad news is there's a new model of something that you just purchased, right? It's bad news. You ever bought something and you think, well, I got the best things ever made and next week, oh, that's last year's model. It's, it's not. And you're like, well, that's bad news. <laughs> I thought I had the best one that's ever made, you know, just when you think your Z28 is good, they come up with a Z28 and a half, right? There's a day coming when all your faith and hope and desires will be satisfied. You'll long no more. See, the faith and hope we have is for right now. But there's a time coming when faith and hope will end. And when faith and hope ends, we'll be with the Lord. But that charity we have in Him will still live on through eternity. And the next verse says, for we are saved by, by hope. Hope saves. Hope saves how? For heaven? Mm -mm. Hope saves us right now. Right now. Hope saves us right now from being so discouraged and down and out and troubled because of the bad news of this world because our hope focuses on something other than all the troubles of this life. Our focus of hope is in glory above. When I'll be satisfied with me, I'll be satisfied with my environment, and I'll be satisfied with my desires and I'll want nothing else. You know, the people in heaven, they're not wanting nothing else. They're happy there. You ever thought about there in John chapter 11? Shortest verse in the Bible. The Bible says, Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Here's a good question to ask. Why did he weep? Why was Jesus crying? I find in the New Testament, Jesus wept three times. And he wept over Jerusalem. He wept in the garden before he's arrested. 
and he, he wept right here at Lazarus' graveside. Why'd he weep? Well, Lazarus was his friend, Brother Ronnie. Yes, he's his friend. He wept because he loved his friend. He wept because Mary and Martha were hurting. Yeah, they were hurting, and he, he wept because of them. Why? Because he feels our infirmities. He loves his children. When they're hurting, he hurts with them. Well, he wept because there's people there that didn't believe. Yeah, he was grieved with people's unbelief. Their unbelieving him grieved him. It grieved the heart of God. I'll tell you another reason he wept. Jesus knew what he was going to do. See, God knows what he's going to do. We never do. God knew what he was going to do. And Jesus, when he got there, told him to move the stone. He didn't move the stone so Lazarus could get out or his power could get in. He tried to move the stone that they could smell that Lazarus was dead. He was dead and had been dead four days. Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. My question to you is this. Where was Lazarus' soul and spirit before Jesus called him back from the dead? Where was he at? Where was he at? Was he in purgatory? A halfway house waiting on the Lord to let him into heaven? I told a man once who was talking to me about purgatory. I said, you know, I can spell purgatory. How do you spell it? B-A-L-O-N-E-Y. Purgatory. There it is. There is no purgatory. There is no halfway. People are in one of three places. They're either in hell, hell not hell, heaven, hell. I'm going to get my directions mixed up. Heaven, hell, or right here. Where is Lazarus? His body is there. Where's the soul and spirit? Where's that? His soul and spirit is in heaven, in heaven. Jesus wept for Lazarus. You know why? Lazarus' soul and spirit was in a place of happiness, joy, and satisfaction, a place where no bad news could hurt you. And Jesus, because Lazarus is subject to the power of God, as we all are, was called back to, to here. Somehow I feel that when Lazarus died the second time, it wasn't as hard for him as it was the first time because he'd already seen the place. You ever talk to someone that said, hey, I knew someone once, I believe, knew something about heaven. I'll tell you, Lazarus knew something about heaven. He'd been there. He'd been there, and don't you know he was a comfort to everyone else? And the Bible teaches us about that place, a place where we have no bad news, no more troubles, no more trials, no more sadness, a place where we're satisfied forever and ever. And Jesus wept. You know what? If it was my loved one, I'd weep if they going to have to come back here to this sinful world. But I tell you what I do, I long to be there with them. I don't want them to come back here to me. I want to be there with them in a place where there'll be no more sad news and no more sad goodbyes, a place where we'll be together forever and ever, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And I stopped 10 minutes early three Sundays ago, and I only took seven minutes of that today. <laughs> Is anyone here that like to come and ask for a home here at Union?